Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. title of today's message comes from an old Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And that title just came to me because uh, we've been looking, last week we looked at Felix, and uh, or in the last message, we looked at Felix, and not Felix a cat, but Felix in the Bible, and we talked a lot about him. If you missed that message, I'm not going to go over all that again, but I just want to remind you uh, that... Um, uh, these stories that we read in the book of Acts, when there's so much attention paid to some other, you know, third person uh, like Felix, or in this chapter, Festus, and then in the next chapter, uh, Agrippa, uh, you know, the Lord put these stories in there, and these stories are left for us, not just because they're historically interesting, which they are, but as examples for us. With each one of these people in each one of these chapters that we're reading here in the book of Acts, you remember that Paul's been imprisoned, and he's so far been held for two years there in Jerusalem. Two years goes by really fast in the Bible because it's just a couple of verses, but in real life, if you were in jail for two years waiting for your trial, that's really a long time. And uh, so he's been in jail for two years. Uh, you'll remember that Felix did leave him in a position that was sort of like a house arrest somewhat, but he wasn't in his own house, in that his friends were able to visit him and, uh, you know, he was kept in relatively good conditions, uh, but still he's being kept for, for two years. And then Felix goes away and there's a new governor. There's a new uh, pr- procurator, a Roman procurator who's sent to the Judean province and his name is Festus and we'll be looking at him today. So the good in this story is Festus. Festus is a really good guy. Uh, the bad is Felix. You remember we talked about how corrupt he was and the things that he did. Felix and Drusilla, uh, his, his second wife, kind of illegal wife, who was the daughter of uh, Herod. And the ugly is coming up, and that's Agrippa and Bernice, but we're going to talk just a little bit about them today. One of the things I really want you to see in these stories that we're looking at today is see yourself in the lives of these people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There's not really any difference between all of them because all of them reject Jesus and all of them are lost. You know, in my own life, as I was thinking about this, it's easier for me to relate myself to the good guy, to Festus, because that's not Festus on Gunsmoke, by the way. I know these names are all like carried over into popular culture, but these were real people. And, uh, and, and just because I've always seen myself as, as a relatively good person. You know, and some of you are probably see yourself in, in the same way. I was raised in a good family. I was raised in church. You know, I was always a good boy, pretty much. And, and uh, in, in general, I always felt like I was a good person. Uh, but there's a difference between the goodness of man and the goodness of God. And I really want you to focus on that today. The Bible says that God is good. It's who he is. The goodness of man more often than not, is a show. The goodness of man, more often than not, has to do with a lot of motives that's difficult for a person to really understand on the inside of themselves. Sometimes people are just good because they're too afraid to get in trouble. 
or they're just, you know, I mean, how often do you obey the speed limit just because you don't want to get a ticket? Not necessarily because you really feel like that's fair to go 55 on a road where there's absolutely nothing out there, and et cetera. But you think there might be a speed trap here and it's definitely not worth the $200, $300 or whatever just to, to speed. Or I'm just going to speed in that little zone where they don't pull you over. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not preaching on speeding because if I was, I'd have to look at myself first. I'm just saying our goodness uh, can be tied to a lot of different motives that are difficult for us to understand. And goodness does not save us. Being good does not bring salvation to our lives. And we see this in the story. Festus is a good man, but he's a good man who's lost because he rejects Jesus Christ. Felix is a bad man, and Agrippa is a very ugly man, as we'll see soon. So in order to understand what we're going to read in chapter 25 uh, I don't know if some people like this. For some people, maybe it's boring, but I need to talk to you about who Festus is historically. If you like history, then great. If you don't, just listen and try to get a, a mental picture of, of this person. His name is Portius Festus. Portius is the family name, and his uh, first name, I guess, is Festus. Uh, he's the exact opposite of Felix in this story because Portius Festus was the consummate politician. He was from an ancient plebeian family. That's a middle-class family in Rome, Gens Portia. And the Portia Gens, the Portia family, had been noted for over 100 years, for 250 years, as a matter of fact. Think about how long 250 years is. I mean, we're talking about back to George Washington times, right? For over 250 years, his family had been noted for its military service and its service uh, uh, originally to the Republic, and then later, after Julius Caesar, to the Empire and to the Emperor. In general, their service to Rome. Everyone that was in that family, every man had served in the cavalry. Every man had, in other words, they were officers in the army. And for the past 250 years, the members of this Portia family had served someone in every single generation. Just try to think of this. Every single generation had served continuously in the highest offices of the Roman government. This was a very important family. It wasn't a royal family, but it was a very important political family. In fact, we see a lot about Roman laws here in the book of Acts. Paul is going to appeal to Caesar in chapter 25. The Roman laws that established the foundation for the special rights and the protections of Roman citizens protections against cruel and unusual punishment, for example, uh, why a Roman citizen could never be crucified, no matter what he had done. He could have his head chopped off, but that wasn't considered cruel and unusual. And, and I know it sounds cruel, but honestly, if you think about it, getting your head chopped off is a lot faster than getting crucified for many, many days and suffering. So a Roman could never be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. The things that we see in the United States Constitution Many, many of these things are based in Roman law, probably all of them. I mean, somebody like Steve or I could tell you better that, that studied and knows the law, but many of these things are based in, in ancient Roman law. And so there was a law such as this. There was a law that every Roman citizen had a right to appeal to a, to a trial before a jury of his peers. The jury trial has its basis in these Roman laws. And every Roman citizen had a right to demand or to appeal 
uh, his case before Caesar when he was accused of a capital crime. Just like in our system, every person has a right to appeal his case to a higher court. And especially when it's a capital crime, that appeal will be received and it will go on. And sometimes even in, you know, in different states don't have capital punishment, but where there is capital punishment, nobody is going to be put to death the, the day after they're found guilty. It takes many, many years to go through the appeal process. So all these things were rights of Roman citizens. And you remember that Paul is a Roman citizen. But here's what I want you to understand. Festus comes from the Portia family. These laws in ancient Rome were called the Portian laws because Festus's great ancestor, who's called Cato the Elder, and you can type that into Google and find out information on him, uh, an ancient Roman, he is one of the ones that was instrumental in establishing these rights for Roman citizens. So get this picture about uh, Festus. Festus is a very noble man, okay? Festus is an ancient Roman. Festus is a man of great honor. Festus, unlike Felix, is incorruptible. Festus does not take bribes. Festus plays by the books. Festus does everything according to the law. He's what we would call a good man, a good politician. He's faithful to the emperor. And Nero is the emperor at this time. Now, everybody thinks Nero was a bad emperor because he was, because the way you're, you're your job or whatever you're doing in life ends, that's what determines whether you did it good or bad, right? The way you finish your race. But in the beginning of Nero's uh, uh, rule, before he went nuts, because he did, he went nuts, but in the beginning of his rule, he was actually a very good emperor who tried to bring order to many things in the Roman Empire. And one of the big uh, uh, problems in the Roman Empire, the Achilles heel of the Roman Empire, was the Judean province. It was the biggest problem that they had, how to keep those Jews quiet, how to keep them at peace. If you'll remember just in a few years after these stories, literally within five years after these stories, there's gonna start a rebellion among the Jews. And in the year AD 70, that rebellion will end with Titus putting down that rebellion, burning the city of Jerusalem to, to, to dust, to ashes, and destroying the second temple uh, in Jerusalem, which has never been rebuilt in the last 2,000 years, and scattering the Jews to all the world, uh, which was the rebuilding of the Jewish um, uh, uh, society and government as a state happened in our, in our lifetimes, or right before our lifetimes, depending on, on how old you are. So this went on for, you know, for 2,000 years. This is a huge turning point in history, in ancient history. And Festus was there to see all these things happen. Uh, well, he wasn't there at the destruction of Rome. He was dead by then, but in the beginnings of all these things. So Festus is the person that Nero picks to send to, to Caesarea to rule over the Judean province to bring order to Jerusalem because Felix had made a huge mess out of it and everything was just getting worse. Festus was Nero's trusted man, okay? He's the consummate politician. He knows how to make deals. He's a man of diplomacy. History tells us this about him. He was the man that shut down the operation of the Sicarii. Remember, I talked to you about them. They were the professional assassins, the terrorists, and he completely shut them down. Felix used them, but he shut them down. The people of Jerusalem, uh, the Sanhedrin in particular, had huge problems with King Agrippa, the king of the Jews. King Agrippa is a descendant of Herod. 
Uh, and their problem uh, was centered around these kinds of things happened, that Agrippa built a big giant wall uh, to wall off his palace so he wouldn't have to look at the temple. And it, <laughs> it just messed up the whole thing in Jerusalem, and he did a lot of other things in Jerusalem uh, that the Jews did not like. And Festus was able to broker a deal between the Sanhedrin and Agrippa so that there would be peace in Jerusalem. He, he, was, he was a deal maker. He knew how to be a politician. But the thing about Festus that we see in this story is that he hears the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul. And the gospel, we'll see in this story, it, it, it touches his soul. It pricks his conscience. He hears the voice of God, but he rejects the voice of God because it doesn't work with his political ambitions. He was able to do many great things, but the one thing that Festus did not have is he had no spiritual vision. He didn't understand the time that he lived in. He didn't understand what was happening in the world. He didn't know what God was doing. He was a man who didn't have a clue when it came to the things of God. We'll see that in this story. The one thing the Jews wanted in order to make peace was, with Rome was for him to deliver Paul over to them so that they could kill Paul. And Festus couldn't understand that because it doesn't make any sense. Why would the Jews care so much about this guy named Paul? But they cared so much. And when I say Jews, and you know this from the story, I hope, that we're not talking about all the Jewish people. Right? We're talking about these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Uh, why did they want Paul so badly? Because Satan was working through them and in them to try to destroy the church. But Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Two years into his office, Festus died. He died from unknown reasons. He died from the stress of the office that he was in. He was very interested in pleasing the Jewish leaders. This comes out in this story. He was more interested in pleasing them than he was in pleasing God. He was, a, he was what we call a populist, a consummate politician. He needed them on his side because that would advance his career before Nero if he could be the one who made peace in Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that Festus thought like that. I know how Festus thought. It comes out in the story. He thought simply that I'm a very good man. But a good man without Jesus is still a lost man. You know, as we look at these people's lives, we should be able to see ourselves in each one of them. I said that, you know, for myself personally, it's easier for me to see myself as the good guy in, in the story. But you know, when I read about Felix and the corruption and how he stole and how he did these underhanded things, how he murdered, I know on the inside of me that I could be a Felix also. It's possible in my flesh for me to become the bad guy. And if you don't know that about yourself, then you're in a very dangerous position. Because we have to be able to judge ourselves so that we shall not be judged. We have to understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God that there is no salvation for any of us, and all of us, the Bible says, the heart of man is desperately wicked. And we have to know that about ourselves. We're going to read about Agrippa, a very ugly person who did ugly things. And as much as I would hope that I could never become that person, when I read the story, I have to understand 
that I could become that person in my flesh if I gave myself over to temptation and continued to give myself over to sin, I could become the very same person. We need to be able to see ourselves in these stories. So Festus dies two years into his office. Nothing good ever comes out of his work. Nothing good ever comes out of his life. And the whole reason is because he didn't have a clue about what God was doing. And he rejected Jesus, thinking that he was advancing his own career thinking that he was advancing his own career and convincing himself that he was doing something good for the people, that he was doing the right thing. You know, sometimes we think that the means justifies the end, but that's actually never true before God. And so we go to, and we make, because we're good people, we compromise with people on things that we know are wrong. We know they're wrong before God. And Festus becomes this man of compromise when he's put into the crucible, when he's put into the fire, his true colors come out, and he becomes a man of compromise. And so a good man is just as lost as a bad man who is just as lost as an ugly man. Look with me at Acts chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, Festus then, and we're just going to read some today, and let's talk a little bit about it. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So see what a good man he is. He doesn't waste any time. He doesn't unpack his bags. Well, maybe unpack his, his suitcase. I don't know. But as soon as he gets to Caesarea, he gets right to work. That's the most important thing to him, is getting to work. He's a man who likes to work. He's an honest man. He, he, he goes up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him, urging Festus, requesting a concession. In the New American Standard, it says concession. The Greek word there is a favor. They were asking for a favor concerning Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, that Festus would bring Paul to Jerusalem, and then look in the parentheses. It says all the while they were setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Of course, they didn't tell that to Festus. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he says, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So Festus wastes no time in getting to work and dealing with these things. Now, I want to just, along the way here, I want to point out a few things to you that are just interesting. Uh, notice in verse 6, it says, after he had spent not more than 8 or 10 days. Okay, Sometimes people read things like that and they think, oh, well, I thought this was the word of God. You know, Does God not know how long Festus was there? You know, This is the Bible. Shouldn't it have an exact number and how many hours and minutes he was there? Well, we actually talked about this in the beginning of, of the book of Acts. We talked about how the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, inspires writers in different ways uh, throughout the Bible. And with Luke in particular, he's a historian. And he tells you at the very beginning of the book that the Holy Spirit is, was inspiring him to interview people who were at certain places and to write those things down. So we talked about there are passages in the book of Acts that, have to do, that, that use uh, the, the first person plural pronoun, we. And wherever we see we, we know that Luke was there at that moment. He himself 
is an eyewitness. But this is not one of those passages. In fact, the we passages begin again with Paul's uh, uh, experience on the ship in chapter 27, verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy. So Luke joins Paul when they get on the ship to go to Italy. But Luke is not with Paul while he's in jail. Luke is not there at this trial. Luke is not in Jerusalem together with Festus, obviously. Luke wasn't there. So later, he interviews people, and he gets this information, and they say to him, well, they were, Festus was there for about a year and a half. And the Holy Spirit inspires Paul, uh, Luke to write it exactly the way that they told it. That this is an eyewitness account of someone else's that's being recorded. So Festus spends a lot of time with them. He spends about a week for a very busy governor. I mean, how often do you think the governor of the state of Nevada goes and visits with uh, uh, political interest or, or uh, human rights interest or religious groups and sits there with them, with them for 10 days and actually listens to everything they want to say? I mean, you know, and I'm not saying anything bad about the governor. Every governor or the president is going to show up, do his five, ten-minute spiel, and then go on and say, put it all in writing and send it to my office and maybe never read it, right? But Festus is a very conscientious politician. He wants to solve this problem. And so he spends, the Bible tells us that he spends about eight or ten days. Now, here's what, another thing that's really interesting. Two years has gone by, and Paul has been in jail this entire time. And when Festus shows up to meet with the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, he's probably expecting them to talk about Agrippa or about problems with irrigation or how the crops are growing, things that might have something to do with problems in Judea. And he knows that as a, as a governor, I can solve those problems because I'm a good man. You know, I come from this noble family. We can find the solution to these problems. But they surprise him. The only thing they care about is Paul. And Festus is like, Paul? Who's Paul? <laughs> you know, I heard about, yeah, he, wait, wait a minute. And he's got this whole entourage with him. We'll see them here in the story. Hey, who's Paul? Yeah, well, well, Paul's been in jail for a couple of years. What, what's the deal about Paul? Well, we want you to bring him down here so we can put him on trial for capital crimes. And he's like, oh, well, yeah, what, what were those accusations exactly it doesn't say anything here well i guess if you can find an accusation against him then we'll bring him down here to jerusalem so you can try him in your sanhedrin do you see this thing's very much like the trial of jesus okay they're trying to put it with jesus they're trying to put Pilate into a corner where he has to crucify jesus and Pilate does everything he can to get out of it but he can't get out of it and finally Pilate, who was also considered himself a good man, washes his hands of Jesus. And Festus, in a very different way, will also wash his hands of Jesus. They demand that he release Paul to them, that he put Paul into their custody. And they do it in a way that it says that they are asking a favor. So in other words, they're saying to him, you know, Festus, one hand washes another. If you want peace in Jerusalem, and that's all Festus wants, because that's what Nero wants, okay? And Festus, like any normal person, wants to advance his career and please his master so that Nero will see the good things he's done. And if you want peace in Jerusalem, there's only one thing we ask. We don't care about, you know, irrigation or crops or anything like that. We don't even care about Agrippa. We'll, we'll take care of Agrippa. All we care about 
is we want Paul. You bring him down here to me. So he finds out right away that this is the most important thing to them. But they have a plan that Festus doesn't know about. They've got those sicari waiting with their little daggers. And on the way down, before he ever gets to trial, they will assassinate Paul. So look with me at verse 7. It says in verse 7, after Paul arrived, so this is in Caesarea, he's sitting, Festus is sitting upon the tribunal to judge, and they bring Paul in, and remember all the important people from the Sanhedrin are there, and after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem uh, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove, same thing as it was with Felix. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar, but Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. So in verse 9, Festus wants to do them a favor. And in verse 3, they ask a favor. It's the same Greek word in both, both places, however they translated it in whatever English version you're reading. So Festus, he wants to do the Jews a favor. That tells us a lot about Festus. He's a real politician. He wants to do them a favor. He's willing to compromise on certain things in this bill so that he can just get the other things passed in the bill, right? And it's, it's just, I'm not even judging politicians. It's how politics works. He's, he's you know, all politics works with compromise. And Festus is a man of compromise. And the, a certain amount of compromise in certain areas and in certain things is, is how deals are made. That's just how they're made in business or anywhere. That's how they're made in a family, how husbands and wives agree to things. Sometimes we just have to compromise on certain things. But when it comes to a compromise about Jesus and a compromise about the Word of God, those are things that we cannot compromise on. As the book of Acts has already told us, that is it not better for us to obey God rather than to obey man? So Festus wants them to do a favor, wants to do them a favor, and Festus says to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Wow. This guy does not have a clue what's going on. What a stupid question. Paul is never going to agree to this. Paul knows that all they're waiting to do is kill him. They've been trying to kill him for years. And Festus so doesn't have a clue that he actually suggests to Paul in a nice, polite way, as a great, nice guy, would you be willing to go with me to Jerusalem and stand trial, not before them, but before me? And then Paul says in verse 10, <laughs> this is great, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. That's what the law says, Festus. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. This is great. You know, Paul doesn't, there's no way that Paul could have arranged this defense ahead of time over two years. He has no idea what kind of questions are going to be asked of him. He doesn't even know what the charges are against him. 
There's no possible way for him to understand the charges because he didn't do any of those things and because there aren't actually any witnesses that have been brought forth, if you remember. So Paul does exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do. He goes into this trial with no preconceived idea of what he's going to say, but he's listening to the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, when they bring you before the judges, when they are persecuting you, you should not think ahead of time about what you're going to say, but listen, and my Holy Spirit will give you the words at that moment. And the Holy Spirit gives him the perfect words. He basically says to Festus, remember the laws of Porsche, the Portia laws, the laws of Rome that your great ancestor wrote, Cato the Elder, which say that this is the tribunal of Caesar, that I'm already standing in the place where I should be judged and where accusers have to be brought forth and witnesses have to be presented and evidence has to be entered in a way that I can defend myself. You have no right, according to those laws, to take me to Jerusalem. And Festus immediately, oh, you're right. I can't do that. I can't do that favor because I'm a good man. I obey the laws. And so Festus backs down from that request. And then, based on those laws, by the Holy Spirit, Paul does the perfect thing. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus says, oh, it's just Pilate washing his hands. Same thing. You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. The Holy Spirit gives Festus an out. He gives Festus an out. At some point in our lives, there comes this moment where God allows us an out if we want it. I've seen people drop out of churches when they get that out. And then people that you, th that you would think were always going to be in church, and then they get that out, and they're just gone. And you don't understand why. But maybe a part of it has to do with what Jesus said, that there's going to come a day when they'll say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? You know, didn't we heal the sick in your name? And, G and I'll say to them, depart from me, I never even knew you. you know, I mean, that's not for me to judge, but it scares me. I don't want to be a Festus. I don't want to be just a good guy that takes the out when he gets it. So Festus gets his out, but Paul gets his in. And it's really cool how it works. Because the Holy Spirit gives Paul these words. Paul speaks them. Festus says to Caesar, you will go. And I know that Paul on the inside of himself is going, yes. I knew that Jesus was going to send me to Caesar. I knew I would go to Caesar. And this is the way that Paul gets to stand before Nero and preach the gospel to him. This was God's plan all along. Now I want to point something out to you. At this moment in the trial, Paul could have demanded his release. Felix left him in jail for two years against the law. Paul knows the law. He's trained in the law. He's a man of the law. And Festus would never have done that. If Paul had demanded his release based upon the law on that day, Festus would have let him go. We even see in chapter 26, skipping ahead, in verse 32, that at the end of this story, which we, we're not going to go through this all today, we're not going to get to chapter 26, but it says in verse 32, and Agrippa, he gets involved, 
said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So strictly from a standpoint of getting out of jail, that was a dumb thing to say. I appeal to Caesar. What he should have said if he just wanted to get out of jail was, let me go, you're holding me illegally, you know, blah, 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 all the little legal precedents, and Festus would have been required to let him go on that day. Paul could have just said, let me go, and then he could have took a boat to, to Rome all by himself or with his friends and said, we're going to go preach the gospel in Rome. But let me ask you this question. If he had gone to Rome as a free man, do you think that Nero ever would have entertained him in the palace? No. No way is Paul ever going to stand before Nero and preach the gospel except this way, only in chains, only if he takes up his cross and follows Jesus. And it reminds me so much of a story in the Old Testament. I'm not going to take the time to open it and read it, but it's over in Esther chapter 4. Most of you know the story of Esther. If you don't, please find the book of Esther and read that short book. And read especially in chapter 4, where Esther has been made the queen. And the king is this great Persian king, Ahusuerus. And, and there's this bad guy. There's the bad guys in here, right? Named Haman, and he's going to have all the Jews wiped out. A big holocaust he's got planned. And her uncle Mordecai finds out about it. You know, uh, Paul had his nephew got involved in this story, if you remember. And her uncle Mordecai sends word to her and says, go to Ahuzurus and plead on behalf of the Jews. And, and, and Esther says, no way. Everybody in the entire kingdom knows the law. That if anybody, even the queen, shows up before the king without being summons, summoned, then, she, then that person will be put to death unless the king stretches out his scepter toward him. And she said, I can't do it. And then Mordecai sends word back to her and says to her, so you think that you alone of all the Jews will be saved? That's not right. What's going to happen here is God's going to save the Jews. The church is going to be established. Jesus already promised it. God will save the Jewish nation, Mordecai says to her. He says, but you and your father's household is going, are going to perish. Now, her father's household, that is Mordecai also. He's her uncle. You're going to wipe out our own family by compromising on this. You're going to destroy your own life by giving in to the compromise of the age. But if you will stand up today, and he says to her, how do you know? that maybe this is the reason God put you in the position of royalty. And I believe that the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul. How do you know, Paul, what's going to happen here? Maybe this is why you're in chains. Maybe this is why you're in this situation. Maybe you're in this situation today because God wants to do something great by, through you. So stand up and say, I appeal to Caesar, because there is a way for you to stand before Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Now, Paul's not stupid. He knows that if he goes to Nero, he's going to die. And that is what eventually happens. Nero puts him to death. But he's willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. And so did Esther also answer Mordecai. And she said that I'll do it. And she said these very famous words in the Old Testament. If I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. And Paul says here, basically, when he says, 
I appeal to Caesar, it's the same as saying, if I perish, I perish. I will take up my cross and I will follow Jesus. And as he says in chapter 26 that we'll get to next time, he did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. So look at me now at verse 13. It says, now when several days had, uh, had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him, in other words, to have him put to death. And I answered them that it is not the custom. See how much he loves the law. He's such a good person. It is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets, meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay. But on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him. Not, listen to this, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Literally, Festus does not have a clue. He doesn't understand anything that's going on. You'll see that later in chapter 26. In chapter 26, it'll be revealed to us that Festus actually thinks Paul's insane that Paul's this idiot savant, that he's so intelligent that his intelligence has driven him mad, okay? But he doesn't think he's worthy of death. He just thinks he's nuts. So Festus doesn't know what's going on. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial in these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa, Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So this is where King Agrippa and Bernice enter this story. And I need to talk to you a little bit about them. This is the beginning of the final act of the Herodian dynasty. The Herod the Great that we read about at the birth of Jesus, began this dynasty. And the dynasty had ruled in Jerusalem for over a hundred years at this point. But the dynasty ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And the destruction of Jerusalem begins on this day with the rejection of Jesus Christ. This king, King Agrippa, he lived some 20 more years after the destruction of Jerusalem. He actually lived to a very old age. But his demise was one of those uh, uh, sad things to see in life when a great man uh, just is worn away with old age and everything is lost to him and nobody respects him anymore. He was an absolute nobody after the destruction of Jerusalem. He had a big problem too because when the Romans came to destroy Jerusalem, in AD 70, just approximately 10 years after this story, he and Bernice supported the Romans. He was on their side against the Jews. And so what happened, because he betrayed the Jews, the Jews 
hated his guts more than they ever hated him before. But at the same time, the Romans hated him also, because that's what always happens to a, to a traitor. The people he betrays hate him, and the ones that he betrays those people to hate him also because they see him as a lowlife, a traitor to his own people. And that's what happened to Agrippa. So this Agrippa, his name in the scripture is Herod Agrippa II. And he is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And as we look at this story, we, we read that there's a, a, a woman with him whose name is Bernice. And this is really interesting. This is the ugly, okay? So uh, remember that Agrippa had a young sister named Drusilla. And this sister married Felix. All these people are intermarried. Good politics here. So uh, the younger sister, Drusilla, had married Felix. We already read about her. But Bernice, Bernice is the older sister. She's still younger than Agrippa, but the older sister. She's very famous in history. If you want to look on the internet, you can find a lot of information on her. She's very famous in history for her many love affairs that she had. All of them absolutely without love and marriages that she made only for political gains. She even had a very long love affair with Titus. And Titus is the Roman general that destroyed Jerusalem. And Titus later became emperor in Rome. Bernice, later after the story, actually lives in Rome and shares a bed with Titus. Okay, And she has great power in Rome. In fact, such great power because of Titus's love for her that Romans hate her, okay? They absolutely hate her. She's like the Jezebel in, in Rome. And when Titus eventually becomes emperor, he sends her away because Romans hate her so much, as much as he loves her, he can't have her in the palace because he can't consolidate his power as emperor if she's there, Okay? History tells us that the rumors are that he would call for her from time to time and they would do whatever they did, but he, continued, he never was with her again officially after he became emperor. But the part of the story that's the ugliest of all is the very well-established and well-supported rumor of many ancient historians, Jewish and Roman, so well-established that it's accepted as a fact today that Bernice loved only one man in her life, really loved. She lived all these years in an illegal and incestuous relationship with her own brother, Agrippa. And so in the scripture, when it tells us that Agrippa and Bernice came together, everybody that would have read this in the first century knew that. This is a very ugly and nasty thing. It was something that not only Jews condemned, but every Roman would condemn. You know, in Roman law, you were allowed to marry a little bit closer than you're allowed to today, but nobody ever had a law that allowed a relationship between a brother and his sister, and the Romans hated this also, and it's part of the reason why they hated uh, Bernice. But this is a very important thing to understand, the ugliness of this. And I'm bringing it up now because when we go into chapter 26, you're going to see something amazing that is ugly as nasty, as perverse as this is, Paul will preach the gospel to Agrippa and Bernice exactly like he preaches it to Festus, exactly like he preaches it to Felix and Drusilla. There's no difference. There is salvation for each one of these sinners. 
whether you're the good, the bad, or the ugly. As ugly as that is, they can still be saved. Otherwise, why would Paul be preaching the gospel to them? And they'll come within a hair of repenting and giving their lives to Jesus. But they won't do it. In the end, Agrippa also rejects Jesus. But the gospel goes out to all of them the same. So in verses 17 through 19, <clears throat> Festus, just like Felix, um, thought that there was going to be some terrible thing about Paul. So he looks at how much the Jews hate Paul. He looks at how serious their accusations are, because it says they were making very serious accusations, but they couldn't prove any of them. We don't know what they are. They must have been so ridiculous that Luke didn't feel by the Holy Spirit there was any reason to write them down for us. But they, they make more serious accusations. Remember in the beginning, <clears throat> what they said about Paul is that he's the leader of these Nazarites and he desecrated our temple. Well, that's not going to work at all if they want him put to death. So they come up with some new stuff. Remember the same thing with Jesus. They brought in false witnesses about Jesus. They said that Jesus said that he's going to destroy the temple and then in three days build it back up. They made up a bunch of lies about Jesus. He said those words, but not in that context, right? That's not what he meant by those words. And they knew that, but they lied about Jesus. And here they're lying about Paul. But Paul thought, uh, or Festus must have thought that they were going to accuse him of murdering somebody or accusing uh, Paul of, uh, you know, trying to overthrow the government in Rome or doing something that would deserve being put to death. But they don't. Festus says all they had was some crazy stuff about their religion, and they kept talking about this dead guy named Jesus. And Paul, he's kind of nuts, he says Jesus is alive. The whole thing was about Jesus. And it's right there before Festus' eyes. And he misses the truth. Instead of saying, Paul, what do you mean that he's alive? How can a person come back from the dead and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? He rejects the gospel that is preached to him and presented to him before his eyes. In the book of Galatians, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul will say, you foolish Galatians, who has be bewitched you? Before whom, who, whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly crucified. Now, he wasn't really crucified in front of the Galatians. But what Paul's talking about is, I so preached Jesus to you that you could see, like I drew a diagram on the chalkboard. You could see Jesus crucified before your very eyes, and now you're turning away from the gospel? And so we know that when Paul preached the gospel, everywhere he preached the gospel, he portrayed Jesus as crucified and resurrected from the dead. And Festus got that message, but he rejected that message because it didn't make sense or didn't serve his political ambitions in any way at all. In fact, it goes completely opposite of his political ambitions because if the king of the Jews came back to life, then that means Nero is nobody. And Jesus is the king of the entire world. So he rejects that. He calls him just a dead man who Paul says is still alive. He says it's not really that important. But I want you to know that over 2,000 years, basically, when you dig down deep to the bottom of it, every war that has been fought on this planet has been fought over Jesus Christ and him crucified and whether he's really alive or not today. Agrippa hears this story, and he says something to Festus that's really interesting. 
he says, I would like to hear this man for myself. I want to tell you why Agrippa says that. Because Agrippa knows everything about Jesus. Agrippa knows everything about Paul. He's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And if you look through the dynasty of the Herods, this is what you'll see. Herod the Great was there when Jesus was born. And he could have received Jesus, but he rejected him. He knew where Jesus would be born because the wise men came personally to him. And they asked him, where is to be born the king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the sky. And these guys are just astronomers. They're pagans, but they accept Jesus. And here come the scribes, and they tell Herod he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It says it right here in the prophecies. And, and Herod could have worshipped him. Because he said, on the way back, I want you to come to me because I want to go worship him also. But he didn't. What did he really want to do? He wanted to kill him, right? That's Herod the Great. And then there's Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. In the scripture, it's just going to say Herod, Herod, but they're different Herods. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He's the one who murdered John the Baptist. And he didn't want to murder John the Baptist. But, you know, his, his lovely, lover, wife, messed up thing they had there too. Daughter, she was so uh, hot when she was dancing uh, that he said, oh, anything you want, I'll give it to you. And mama said, I want John the Baptist's head on a silver platter right now. And he had to murder John the Baptist. He rejected Jesus, and he's the one who was there at the crucifixion of Jesus and gave consent to that. Then there's Herod Agrippa I. That's the grandson of Herod the Great. He's the one that persecuted the church in Acts chapter 12. He's the one that murdered James, the brother of Jesus Christ, by throwing him off the pinnacle of the temple. And he attempted the murder of Peter, but God saved Peter. He warred against the church, and he suffered and died in Acts chapter 12. We read about him. And then there's Herod Agrippa II, the great-grandson. And here we read, this is the last chapter of the Herods. One more chance for the Herods, but they reject Jesus again. We'll read about that in chapter 26. So look at verse 23, and we're going to close up here by looking at this last section. It says, so on the next day, when Agrippa, Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, I'll talk about that in a, minute, in a minute, and it'll be important in chapter 26. But try to get this picture in your head. I don't know, when I read it, I think about the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie, and when, uh, when Charlton is still on the side of the Egyptians before he becomes Moses on the other side type of thing. And if you remember, there's this scene when he's, bring, he's coming in after his great victory before Pharaoh, and he brings in all these like leopards and tigers and these Africans dressed with these amazing costumes on great pomp. You know, this is great pomp is great pomp in the ancient world. That they come together with Bernice amid great pomp and they entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, for I am a good man, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, 
so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. So what is Festus interested in? He's still the same Festus, the politician. So he got his out. His out is, I can send Paul to Caesar. And I'll tell the Jews, there's nothing I can do about it. The law says he can appeal to Caesar, so I have to send him to Caesar, and they'll have to make peace with me. And so then he realizes, somewhere in this story, wait a minute, I got a huge problem. Because I'm going to send Paul to Caesar, but when I write the accusations to Nero, my boss, there's going to be a blank page. I don't even know what to write. Nero's going to think I'm a fool. This is going to endanger my political career. This is going to be terrible. So King Agrippa, he's a Jew. He'll be able to figure out what I should write on a piece of paper. I mean, Festus so literally has no clue at all. All he cares about is what he's going to write on that piece of paper. The guy is really a bureaucrat, a real politician. All he cares about is what it looks like on paper when Jesus Christ is being preached to him. When he doesn't care about his eternal salvation. He doesn't care about, about, uh, about this man, Paul's life, really. All he cares about is what he'll write on paper. But Agrippa, he's different. Agrippa is very, very afraid of Jesus. And he comes with great pomp together with Bernice. He shows up in a way that's intended to intimidate and to overpower Jesus. It's not about Paul, it's about Jesus. I actually think that Herod, both of them in the book of Acts, probably really knew that Jesus raised from the dead because they had the inside story. They knew nobody stole that body. They knew that they just paid money for the Roman soldiers to say they stole the body. And they were scared of Jesus. That's why they were trying to kill them. That's why they were trying to persecute the church. And he comes with this great pomp, intending to intimidate and overpower Jesus. But Jesus, in chapter 26, will completely turn the tables on them. So, great pomp. In the Greek, it actually says, with all fantasy. It's the Greek word, fantasia. It's where we get the word fantasy is. And it, is, it has this meaning. It's the power by which a phantasm or a vision, a phantasm is like a ghost, or an image is presented to the mind of those who see it. It's the power of hypnotism. He comes with great pomp to hypnotize the entire court, to hypnotize all the people around him. Why does a person need great pomp? You need a great mask to cover a really ugly face. This is the ugly. And in his heart, he knows he's ugly. He knows the law. He's actually a good Jew. He was raised in the religion. He knows the way he should be living. And he's not living that way. So he puts on a great mask to cover over who he is on the inside. But Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17, and then this is repeated twice in the New Testament in Acts 10.34 and Romans 2.11. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 lays out these words. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great, he is the mighty, and he is the awesome God. And he does not show partiality. Literally, in both Hebrew and Greek, both of them, 
it says he does not receive the face of a man. He does not receive the mask that you put on. Your pomp means nothing to the Lord God. He knows who we are on the inside. He sees beyond the mask. He does not show partiality. Festus is a man who shows partiality. Festus is biased, is what we would say today. He wants to do a favor. Felix was a man who was corrupt. Felix was criminal before the law. Festus is just political, but the result is the same, whether you're the good, whether you're the bad, or you're the ugly, if you've rejected Jesus Christ in your life. Now, I know that I'm preaching to a church crowd today, that I'm not preaching this on the, street, on the streets. I know that everyone in here, many of you, I know your lives very well, and you are really good people. And like I said, I believe that I'm a good person. Some of you were the ugly. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you have become good in Christ Jesus. Some of you were the bad and really bad, and you could regale us with stories of your testimony of what God's done in your life. Some of you are like me. You were just always the good boy or the good girl. But I'm here to tell you today that even as Christians, if we, continue, if we try to live our lives based on our own goodness, it's not pleasing to God because he sees beyond who we, who we pretend to be. He sees who we really are, and we need to see who we really are, that I cannot live a day of my life but by the blood of Jesus. I cannot be good. Even Jesus himself, when a man came up to him and said, good teacher, remember that? And Jesus said, what are you calling me good for? Nobody is good except for God. He's challenging that man because that man doesn't believe that he is God. That man doesn't believe he's the son of God. He thinks he's just a good teacher. Well, if Jesus is just a good teacher, then he's not a good teacher. Because there are, Jesus says, there are no good teachers. There are no good pastors. There are no good people. Only God is good. And the only goodness I can have in my life, or you can have in your lives, we can have in our lives, we can have in our church, is when we let God be God. And we let Jesus be Jesus. And we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives and do what it is that he desires to do. We cannot live according to our own goodness. The awesome God who does not show partiality. And then it says, or take a bribe. So God is not a Festus. He doesn't show partiality. But he's also not a Felix. He doesn't take a, a bribe. There are people who take great pride in their badness. Did you know that? Sometimes all of us can be like that. You know, people take such great pride in their badness that bad means good. You know, like, I'm bad. He's bad. That's bad. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, we can change all this stuff around. You can take great pride in how bad you are. You can take great pride in how ugly you are. And you'll find a crowd to take great pride in. But none of it means anything. As my dad would say, it doesn't mean a hill of beans to God. That's when he wasn't using a more different word. But he said, a hill of beans. It doesn't mean a hill of beans to God. It means nothing to God. Because that's not who God is. God's not a Festus, he's not a Felix, and he's definitely not an Agrippa. God is good. He doesn't just pretend to be good. So all categories of people can be found in these characters. Festus, Felix, Drusilla, Agrippa, Bernice, the good, the bad, the ugly, so ugly that they wear a mask of pomp. 
But the sad thing about it is every one of them could have been saved, even Bernice and Agrippa, but none of them were saved because they reject Jesus. In Romans chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, you can read it on your own. This is a place where what we just read in Deuteronomy is quoted, that God shows no partiality. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, New Testament, Paul says, On that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So what was Paul preaching to them? Not every word he said is recorded here, of course. What was he preaching to them? What was it that so convicted their hearts? What was it that caused such a storm in Judea that they just wanted to get rid of Paul like they wanted to get rid of Jesus? He was preaching to them that Jesus Christ is alive and he is coming back again. And all of your pomp and all of your fantasy and all of your masks and all of your glory is going to be worthless trash in that day. You're not going to take any of it with you. And when you stand before him, Agrippa, when you stand before him, Felix, those guys knew because they weren't such great guys, but even you, Festus, the good boy, when you stand before him, he's going to unveil all the secrets of your heart and you will be judged according to those things. Unless you allow it to all be sacrificed in Jesus on the cross and you accept him as your Lord and Savior. Everyone in this room, probably, has at some point accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But what Paul is saying to the Galatians when he says, how has somebody bewitched you? It's so easy for us to fall away from the grace of God and begin to walk according to our works, to be the good person, or the bad, or the ugly. And we have to know and understand from these stories that God chose to reveal to us over many chapters of the book of Acts that a man is not saved by his works, whether they're good, whether they're bad, or they're ugly. The only thing that will matter in the end, the only question that has to be answered is the question of Jesus. And it's so simple. Is he dead or is he alive? And if he's alive, let me just ask you this question. Is he dead or alive? So we should live our lives as if he actually is alive and he actually is coming again and he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Jesus said, and I'll close with this, to the disciples, if you remember, he asked the question. He said, who do men say that I am, right? And it's like some, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, you know, and all these things. And then Jesus simply said, but whom do you say that I am? So this is a question I want you to hear from the Lord this morning. Because he's asking us. He's asking me. He's asking each one of us for our lives today. Whom do you say that I am? And the answer is given to us. You can study for the test. It's easy. Peter says, is, is Peter a perfect guy? No, he's got, I can find more problems with Peter's life than any of us have ever had. None of us denied Jesus three times as he was being crucified on the cross. And yet all of us did because we've denied him in our lives, right? He's not a perfect guy, but he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. 
You are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You are above the president in Washington. You're above the president in Moscow. You're above the United Nations. You're above anybody that ever ruled on planet Earth. You are King of Kings. You are Lord of Lords. You are the Christ. And you are the Son of the living God. You are God in flesh. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, you didn't get that from studying books. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That was revealed to you by the Spirit, by my Father who is in heaven. That's the answer that we need. And if we live as if Jesus is alive because he is alive, then we live a completely different life than a Festus, a Felix, or an Agrippa. Amen? Let's stand together. And I have the worship group come up here. I just want us to pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. And we just pray, Lord, before you this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would convict our hearts because I sense that you are convicting our hearts as we listen to your word. I know, Lord, for us to get up to speed on these stories, sometimes it's a lot of uh, details and things we have to look at, Lord, but I just pray that you would help us to hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts today. Whom do you say that I am? Whom do you say, you personally, not your mom, not your dad, not your brother, your sister, not your pastor. Whom do you personally say that I am? Jesus, we know that you're not just a dead guy that Paul says is alive. We know that you are alive. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be your witnesses in this world that we live in, that when people see us, Lord, and hear us, Lord, that it would be like it was with Paul. They wouldn't even know what to do with us because we so radically believe that you are alive, Lord, and we live our lives in that manner. I pray, Lord, that we would have courage because courage is born out of faith. Nobody is just born with courage. If somebody's just a daredevil and we say they're courageous, probably they're just stupid. But real courage is born out of faith when we really believe. I'm sure Paul trembled. I'm sure he had some second thoughts in his flesh about what's going to happen when I get to Caesar, but he had the courage to speak what the Holy Spirit was giving him to speak because he really believed, Lord, in the truth that you are alive and that you are coming to judge the secrets of men's hearts. In that day, Lord, we don't want to have any secrets before you. Every one of us probably have a few skeletons or at least a few bones left in some closets. We don't want to have secrets before you. We don't need to go around blabbing about everything to people on this earth. Sometimes we need to confess something to someone we've offended. But Lord, we need to lay our hearts bare before you. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.